Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. The U.S. bishops approved their long-awaited and much-debated document on the Eucharist last week. We'll talk with America's national correspondent Michael O'Loughlin, who was at the meeting. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from uh, cloudy Rome, Colleen. And good morning to you in Chicago, Mike. Hey, good morning. All right. So the bishop's document on the Eucharist finally was approved at their meeting in Baltimore last week. And Mike, you were there covering the meeting. I'm going to just quickly summarize what they ended up coming out with. So the document ended up focusing mostly on the theology of the Eucharist. After all this debate about pro-choice politicians and the possibility of denying them communion, The final document only makes oblique references to politicians. It says that Catholics who exercise public authority, quote, have a special responsibility to form their consciences in accord with the church's faith and the moral law and to serve the human family by upholding human life and dignity. But really, most of the document is about the theology of the Eucharist. And then we'll talk a little bit later about how the bishops set aside quite a bit of money, $28 million for a Eucharistic Congress that they think will help with this broader effort toward a Eucharistic revival. Another thing that's significant about this document is that it passed overwhelmingly with 222 yes votes, uh, eight no's, and three abstentions. So, Mike, you were at this meeting, and I saw that a lot of the news coverage, including yours, described the conversations around this document as much more tepid than previous debates about this. Why was that? Like, what do you think accounts for the change? That's right. It was a packed house in terms of journalists. Uh, A lot of secular media was there to cover cover the debate, to cover the meeting. And it was a bit of a letdown if you were looking for a big story as a journalist, because back in June, when bishops were meeting and debating this document, they spoke for more than two hours, more than 40 bishops spoke. It was clear that two sides were emerging, one that really wanted a document, including some bishops who were sincere in their calls for highlighting Catholic politicians who deviate from church teaching. And then another side who said, no, we don't want to go down that road. We don't want to be adding fuel to the communion wars fire. So over the past few months, as they've been drafting this document, there was this sense that maybe there'd be some kind of fireworks at this meeting. We did know, I mean, America reported back in September, uh, we got a copy of the draft of the document. And it was pretty clear that unless something changed at this meeting, there wouldn't be that kind of headbutting with Catholic politicians. The document was much more theological, like you said, it didn't have many explicit references to Catholic politicians. So 
we went to the meeting, maybe a bishop would propose some kind of amendment that would make it more political. But ultimately, they didn't. There was, like you said, a very short conversation about the draft of the document on Tuesday morning. Only four bishops spoke, and it was very much clarifying questions about specific language in the text. And then the next day, during the conversation leading up to the vote, again, just a handful of bishops spoke. There wasn't any kind of dissent or disagreement that we heard uh, in the public sessions. The big sort of factor in all this, though, was the amount of executive session time the bishops used during this meeting. Normally, they do meet off camera for a little bit at their meetings, but there was at least two days, a little bit more devoted to meeting away from the media, which frustrated some of us who had traveled there. But they said they needed that time to speak openly and honestly with each other. And the people I've talked to, the bishops in the room, have said it wasn't contentious in there either. It seemed as if bishops had gotten to a place where they could agree to at least pass this document and move on. Uh, They didn't like this uh, public bickering that has been happening. Got it. Now, we know that Rome kind of intervened in this process a few times. We saw, you know, back when the bishop's working group decided to draft a document on this, the uh, head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith sent a letter to USCCB President Gomez and said that, you know, the bishop should really kind of slow down. They should focus on dialogue before launching into drafting this document. We also had uh, the comments from Pope Francis in response to Jerry's question on the papal plane about denying communion. And the Pope said he had never denied communion to anyone. He said that pastors should focus on being pastors, even to people who can't receive communion in good conscience. So Jerry, I want to toss this question to you. You know, Rome did intervene in this process several times. Is your sense that people in the Vatican are satisfied with this result? I think there's a certain amount of relief that the bishops have found unity among themselves. Remember, this is an issue that they have been debating since 2004, when John Kerry was was a candidate to be president. And at that time, Cardinal Burke and others came in very heavily and wanted denial of communion. At that time in 2004, they decided, no, that's not the road we're going. 17 years later, they arrived back at the same point. And, you know, it reminds me of it was the English poet who said, you know, we return from the point from which we started and know it for the first time. And I think there's a certain relief in Rome that the bishops have found unity among themselves. And I think it's very significant that at the end, when they took that vote, which you have given, and they had a massive overwhelming 222 votes in favor, eight against, and then they applauded. It was as if they were giving expression to their own relief that somehow they had come out of a maze into which they had put themselves. I kind of want to ask both of you this question. Do you think that the Vatican's interventions had a lot to do with how this turned out? I mean, it's kind of a crystal ball question, so maybe it's not fair to ask, but I'm curious what you think. I I think certainly the bishops have listened. Um, My impression, and especially they've listened to the Pope as well, not just to the Vatican, the very clear message that came from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. And remember, that wouldn't have come without agreement with the Pope. They would not have sent such a document without the Pope's knowing about it and assenting to it. And then the Pope himself came in expressed his own view. And he said, these are issues that we must deal with pastorally and not politically. He said, politically, we've produced disasters in the past 
and he gave many examples. We've discussed it on this program, but pastorally. And I think the bishops have now realized they, they, they have, I think the majority of bishops were probably on that line. You had some pushing more in different directions. But I, I think it's a very good thing that now they can say we've refound unity. We know where we stand. Our position hasn't really changed in 17 years. And now is the time to move ahead. There are many other issues which were eclipsed or perhaps neglected because of this focus. Yeah, back in June, Colleen, I was wondering what effect all that debate had. So we had this two hours of debate, very clear sides emerging. And then even back in June, it was still a pretty significant vote to move forward with the draft. I think there were about 60 people who said 60 bishops who voted no. And I was asking a U.S. cardinal, you know, what what did he make of this? Um, There was all this debate and then it still passed overwhelmingly to go ahead. And he told me that he thought the message got through, that even though bishops voted to go ahead, they were trying to send a signal of unity. The message kind of came through that, no, let's not go down this political path. And I was skeptical at the time, but it turns out he was right that the final document was shaped with a less political tone than they had. some bishops had originally proposed. So in addition to the Vatican, in addition to Pope Francis, it does seem that U.S. bishops were warning against this path. It did have some kind of impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I think that the the unity here, the overwhelming majority uh, voting voting for this document, is a is a really significant sign. So there's going to be this big meeting that they're planning. They've devoted 28 million dollars uh, to hold this big Eucharistic Congress, which is like a big gathering of people to pray and hear talks about the Eucharist. It's all part of this effort to spur a Eucharistic revival, which the bishops want to see, which we talked about in our deep dive episode. But I can't help but think about how this is planned for 2024, which is the next election year. And I'm curious, you know, I don't know. Do you think that this this debate might pop up again around that? That is a great insight that I haven't seen elsewhere yet that when this is taking place. And we don't know. I mean, uh, the White House says that President Biden is running for reelection, but there are obviously questions about his age and if he wants to take on another uh, grueling campaign and presidential term. If he is the nominee, though, I can't imagine that the voices in the U.S. hierarchy who are calling for uh, greater confrontation with him over his support for abortion rights, I can't imagine they would shrink away during an election year. And if you do have this big event, they're expecting, I think, upwards of 80,000 people gathered in Indianapolis for this multi-day uh, Eucharistic Congress. I, yeah, that, that that might become another another clash and we might see another debate about this. But a lot of unknowns, but if Pope Francis is still Pope and the president's running for re-election and there's still this uh, similar dynamic playing out, I can't imagine that there'll be an appetite among all of the bishops to go down this road again. So I think we'd have to wait and see kind of the particulars of the of the race. So Mike, what happens now? When does this communion document take effect, I guess? Yeah, it'll it'll go through another editing process. So what we were actually witnessing at the meeting was bishops reading the draft, proposing amendments, voting on those amendments, then voting to accept the amended document. So now that they've done that, there'll be some more finessing of the document. It'll be probably posted to the USCCB website. Journalists will report on it once it's out. But the content is really already out there. Whether it reaches a wider audience depends on how engaging it is. And there are some questions about that. So I don't anticipate this becoming a, a hugely popular document, but it is an available resource for bishops, pastors, lay ministers to use to teach about the Eucharist. And I think that's what uh, bishops are hoping for in a best case scenario. Right. So Jerry mentioned earlier that 
you know, now that the bishops have, at least for now, stepped away from from this this confrontation with pro-choice politicians, they have a lot more uh, time and energy to give to other topics. So after the break, we're going to talk about what Rome wants the bishops to focus on going forward. So while the Vatican may not have been very happy with all the attention that the bishops paid to the communion debate, there were several times that the that Vatican officials were given a platform at the U.S. bishops' meeting. And the biggest of those was the speech by Archbishop Christophe Pierre, who's the apostolic nuncio. He's like the Pope's ambassador to the U.S. His speech is uh, an example of what message Rome wanted to send to the bishops. So, Mike, can you summarize for us what the nuncio's message, or in a way, the Pope's message to the U.S. bishops was? Sure. Uh, And readers can take a look at America's website. We have an article up there summarizing the speech. But basically, the nuncio was focusing on the Pope's and the Vatican's effort to highlight the synod and this way of being church that's very much a listening church. If I, if I had to summarize his uh, speech, it would be encouraging bishops to listen to, to Catholics, to other leaders, to learn about what's going on in the world so that they can be better pastors. He used as an example, this was kind of interesting given the debate that was about to take place with communion, he used as an example the church's pro-life efforts. And he stated very clearly that the church needs to continue to be pro-life and be a witness uh, for the unborn in society. But he said that the church in the United States might consider another way of going about it by listening to women who find themselves with unplanned pregnancies. What are their concerns? What are their needs? How can the church offer services and support rather than maybe the more, um, and this is reading into it a little bit, but maybe doing that instead of the more political activity that has characterized the pro-life movement in recent years. Uh, So that was an interesting example that he chose to highlight given the contentious debate around abortion in the Eucharist. Uh, He also touched on the Eucharist and repeated the Pope's lines that the Eucharist should not be a reward for the few, but rather something that's offered as almost a healing agent. So that he was very much in tune with what bishops were going to be debating that day. And how was that message received? I I, I don't know how how it was received. There was interesting as uh, media there, the the way the meeting was structured, it opens up on public session on Tuesday, the Nuncio gives his address, and then the president of the conference, Archbishop Jose Gomez, gives his address. The Nuncio spoke for about 30 minutes. Archbishop Gomez spoke for maybe half that time at most. And it was very different visions for the church, I think. The Nuncio wanted uh, Catholics to be in the world, to be listening to the world, learning from the world. Archbishop Gomez seemed to be retreating a little bit. He had been coming off some criticism for a speech he gave in which he criticized social justice movements like Black Lives Matter. He did seem a little reticent to get too deep into that, but he did double down on those themes that Catholics are called to be different from the world. And there was, I think, this contrast between uh, being open and listening and being more closed off from secular influences. So I'm not sure. I I would suspect that most U.S. bishops would gravitate toward Archbishop Gomez, but the Nuncio has been preaching this message for the past five years now, and surely he's won over some converts. The Nuncio's talk was also not the only message we heard from a Vatican official on synodality at the U.S. bishops meeting. Cardinal Grech, who is the Secretary General of the Vatican Synod of Bishops, gave a speech 
to the bishops in a video message about synodality. And he really focused on the what he called the reciprocity of the relationship between lay people, the bishops, and his own office, the synod secretariat. And he really focused on the role that bishops play in the synodal process. The feedback comes from the lay people in these listening sessions, and then it is filtered through the bishops. They gather together the feedback, and then they will discuss it together. And so he really was emphasizing the discernment role that that the bishops play here. And I think if I were to summarize his message, it would be you know that that the bishops don't need to be afraid of this synodal process. Now. I don't know if bishops necessarily are afraid of this. Obviously, there's a lot of reasons that about half of U.S. dioceses are behind on their synod plans or haven't started yet. You know, there's a lot of issues with resources and just not having enough time to plan. And I, I think that we will see it come together. But Cardinal Greck really emphasized that he didn't want bishops to be afraid of the synodal process. And he also kind of wanted them to trust the lay people in this country. He said, the laity in the U.S. is already formed in synodality. We have parish pastoral and financial councils. We have diocesan pastoral councils. And he also spoke about the Encuentro meetings, which are these meetings that happen about Hispanic Catholic ministry. So really strong message on synodality here from the Vatican. And we also heard Archbishop Shakluna speak in a video message about implementing vos estis, implementing better child protection. So Jerry, maybe you can talk to us about that. What what was the message from the Vatican on child protection in the US? Well, basically, I think he was trying to bring all the bishops up to speed on what their responsibility is in dealing with the abuse question. And uh, I, I think it's true to say that in many parts of the world, uh, the message that Pope Francis has given, the, the legal standards he has set uh, in for dealing with the abuse question, has not yet been fully absorbed into the consciousness of the bishops. And I think Shikluna set out to make very clear to each bishop, you have a responsibility here. This is what it is. And he's, he spelled it out in two sessions. It, it was a long session, as far as I know. Mike was probably listening to it as well. But I, I think it's very important that they're all on the same page. R remember, the, the Nuncio speech focused about the bishops being in unity. He said, you know, people are not attracted to a church where, where there is not unity, where you have infighting. And I think... Uh, it's also important that there is unity in the process of dealing with the abuse question in all the bishops' uh, dioceses. Right. And the bishops did vote at this meeting to review their charter for the protection of children and young people. And they want to bring it up to speed with these changes that Pope Francis has made in recent years, like implementing vos estis. Vos estis mandates reporting, and it also puts in place this system of making bishops accountable to their local metropolitan who can investigate other bishops in their region. So the bishops voted this meeting to include those changes in their charter and then also uh, to review the charter to take into account the new changes to the penal code in canon law, which was just updated earlier this year. And that mandates punishments for, for abuse and for uh, cover-up. So the Vatican's messages to the U.S. bishops at this meeting really focused on synodality and also on child protection, making sure that the bishops are all on the same page. We're once again getting this real strong emphasis on unity from the Vatican to the U.S. bishops. And Jerry, kind of an interesting addition to this is, is that the Pope shared a message that 
outlined eight Beatitudes of the Bishops, which are kind of guidelines for new bishops. These weren't actually written by the Pope, they were written by another bishop. But maybe you could talk to us about, you know, what what these Beatitudes of the Bishops are, what the message is that the Pope wanted to share with bishops around the world. When we read it first, we, many of us thought the Francis has written this. And, and then we, we, we read that the Archbishop of Naples, a new bishop who was a, a street bishop, a one who's been walking the streets and been very engaged, had actually written it and used it in a homily on the end of October when he ordained three new bishops for that diocese. But Francis had made it his own by giving this little card. On one side, the image of the Good Shepherd. On the other side, the eight, eight uh, Beatitudes. The message is very clear. He, he starts the, the, the first one, he says, Blessed is the bishop who makes poverty and sharing his lifestyle because with his witness, he is building the kingdom of heaven. And then I, I was struck by one which I, I think would be very appropriate for the United States, where he says, it's in the seventh beatitude, blessed is the bishop that works for peace, who accompanies the paths of reconciliation, who sows in the hearts of the presbyterate the seed of communion. In other words, the bishop who within his own pre-spring Bill's communion, who accompanies a divided society on the pathway of reconciliation, who takes by hand every man and every woman of goodwill in order to build fraternity. God will recognize him as his son. I, I, I think there's real, in, in a few words, there's a deep message for, for bishops, uh, as I said, in the United States, where it's very clearly a divided society today. Blessed who accompanies a divided society on the pathway of reconciliation. And so what is the message for the United States bishops? In my opinion, it's absolutely my opinion. I, I, I think he's saying, look at yourself. Now you've come out of a difficult moment in the history of the conference. Look at yourself now. And here's a good mirror to which you can check how you are being a bishop in the light of this these eight Beatitudes. So it's kind of look at yourself in the mirror of the Beatitudes. Right. So the narrative that I'm kind of seeing emerging is that, you know, the U.S. bishops, they were able to come together and kind of step back from this very volatile culture war debate that they had been having to come together and really focus on this pastoral need they see for a Eucharistic revival. And you know, now that they have stepped back from that, now that they can kind of reevaluate the message we're hearing from Rome about synodality, about sexual abuse, and now in these eight Beatitudes of the bishops that Pope Francis shared, is that the bishops need to look at coming together around other issues and also kind of trying to heal some of the divisions in our very, very polarized society. The, the nuncio in his homily or in his talk to the bishops, he outlined, he said, it was all focused on synodality. But he said, by walking together, we address these problems. And he mentioned racism. He, he, he mentioned uh, working together with people, with, with lay people, and building the unity. And he, he said at the end, you know, people won't be attracted to Christ. Or this was the sense of it. They won't be attracted to Christ if the church is divided. They will not be attracted to that church. So if our listeners want to hear more about the eight Beatitudes of the Bishops and read some of our analysis of the USCCB's November meeting, you can find all of that at americamagazine.org and linked in the show notes. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 
Jerry, thanks so much. Thank you, Colleen. Look forward to next week and uh, happy Thanksgiving to our listeners. Maybe they'll have had their Thanksgiving dinner by the time they hear this, but it will be Thanksgiving weekend. Yes, happy Thanksgiving to you too, even though even though you don't celebrate it in Rome. <laughs> Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Production assistance from Kira Hanlon and Ricardo De Silva. Sound engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. And if you want to support our work here on Inside the Vatican, the best way to do that is by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell and Michael Lachlan, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.